All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get started. Dear Father, we thank you that you would create the Lord's Day for us. We were not, man was not made for the Lord's Day. Today was made for man. It is a celebration. It is a joy. It's uh, restful, full of worship. And Father, may it be that way for us today. May we, in faith, truly rejoice in you. May we truly rest in you. May we truly celebrate you. And Father, we ask that your uh, wonderful spirit would come and work in us so that may be true, and we may truly delight in you today. Uh, And everything we do, Father, may you correct us, may you reprove us, may you encourage us, may you strengthen us, uh, for we are your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we've been walking through a few chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, We did the chapter on covenant, kind of how we think about theology on a bigger scale. We did a last chapter on Christ the Mediator, talked about how that's the heart of the gospel. And today we talk about a very fun topic, free will a topic I'm sure you've heard about people debating or you yourselves have had fun little arguments and scuffs over. It is a topic that um, when I went to college and seminary, people enjoyed being more emotive about this topic than maybe actually thinking through the topic, myself very much included at times. Um, But it is an enjoyable topic. It can be seen as more philosophical, Um, I don't think that was the thrust of the Westminster Divines when they wrote this. I don't think they were trying to make a philosophical statement about the will. I think they were making a very profound theological claim, and at the end of it, encouraging God's people. It is very easy to talk about the will of man purely philosophically. Right? We use almost all philosophical terms and frameworks, right? So you hear about determinism versus um, compatibilism, right? So we, the idea that man's will and God's will are pretty much the same, and how do they work? Is it compatible or incompatible? Does he force and determine you, or are you just autonomous? And all these frameworks can be helpful. They can, but that's not the framework I think we should enter into when talking about the will. We should talk about it from a theological perspective. The will is something God created. The will is something he gave you. He is sovereign over it, and he has given you a will for his glory. He has given you a will so you may know him and worship him. So it's a theological conversation. And what they do is they talk about, in the first stanza, what the will is. Then they talk about how the will operates at different points in redemptive history and how it operates differently for those who are still under Adam versus those who are under Christ. They are still connecting that covenantal framework into how we talk about the will. All right, so for the first stanza, we're talking about, they kind of set forth a very 
uh, profound way of understanding the will with one simple word, endowed. God hath endowed the will of man with the natural liberty that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. So if you notice, they first start with the word endowed. They want to make sure we know the will was created by God and was granted to us by God. We are entering into an understanding of creature-creator. Right? We're not entering into a philosophical framework of some deity and man who have the same type will. All right? No, there is an uncreated, holy being, and there are created beings who are, at different points in redemptive history, holy and unholy. So these wills are different. God does have an uncreated will. It's a will that has life in himself. It's a will that needs nothing, no dependence. Our wills are created. They're dependent upon God. They are. They're, they're sustained by God. We don't talk about how does our will and his will relate as if we're talking about two apples. We have a, a gardener and we have a plant. All right, so that's the first thing they do is they set this framework up. And that's, it's very important, actually, because in the, the classes I had in seminary on philosophy, when you start talking about it as if, well, how do we take these two equal things and how do they relate, you walk yourself down into heresy. You walk yourself down into a lot of problems because you're thinking both wills are the same. Both wills ontologically have the same attributes. Both wills ontologically operate the exact same way. It's just not true. But he did endow man with the will, and he tell, and the divines tell us what they, how they see this will working. And they do it with negatives. So it's not forced and it's not determined. It is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined. What they're getting at here with forced is what they want you to see is your will and what you do and how you live and how you feel ultimately is not a forced result of external external components. Ultimately, you will what you will. You can't say that these outside forces made you do what you do. There is a true responsibility of the will. You cannot say, like my uh, child might, well, I took that toy from Sissy because Sissy took the toy from me. There was this thing that happened out here, and it forced me to do it that. And they won't go, no, no, that's, that's not how our wills operate. You are not just enslaved to the context 
You're not forced by these things to do something. But neither are we determined. And this is an internal statement. You are not a math equation. Your will is not one plus one equals two, then two plus two equals four, and four plus four equals eight. Your soul is more profound. Deep waters run within you. Use more to your will than simply some mechanism happening. Right? You're not mechanical. You can take a robot apart, put it back together, and it still works. I can't do that with you. <laughs> You'll stop working. There's more to the will than simply the context and mechanical workings. There, there's something spiritual about it. It's untangible. We can't really touch it. And God's granted you this will. And so how does this work? And I think one of the biggest downfalls we have is when we start entering into the conversation of how this will works without understanding the framework of covenant theology and who we are as people. And they do this, all right? So one step at a time. So this is kind of what we look at for our will. It's not forced. It's not determined. Here in this next statement, it says, man in his state of innocency, talking about Adam before the fall, Adam and Eve had freedom and they had power to will and do that which is good and well-pleasing to God, but yet mutably, so that he might fall from it. So if someone said, well, you have the will to, you have the freedom and power to do whatever you want, and that's what the will is, first question should be, well, hold on, now? <laughs> like, is that now un- under, under Adam, under Christ? Are you talking about Adam before the fall? Like, there's, there's a context of time and how God's working that we should ask. And they start with in time of creation. In the time before the fall, Adam's will had freedom and power. This is a good thing. He truly had the full range of freedom to look at the garden, all that was good, tend the soil, and delight in God. There was a freedom there to indulge and worship him. And he actually had the power, the ability to will it. He really could get up and start tending the soil. He really could take something, eat it. He really had the power and freedom to worship and commune with God. And this freedom and power had no residue of sin. It had no temptation in nature. There was no temptation in him. There was no residue of it. There was no, there was no condemnation. No sin had entered. It was a free ability to walk with his maker 
and to actually relate to him according to the covenant of works. But, as we know, sin did enter. The serpent did come. He did deceive Eve. Adam did fail to be the covenant head and sinned. He truly did sin. And there's a a fun debate, if you want to be had, about how did that happen when there was no sin entering the world yet, there was no temptation in him, how did that happen? Luckily, they don't talk about it here, so I don't have to address that right now. But this is what they're wanting us to see, is that when we talk about the will just in its essence, this is it. When we talk about the will Adam and Eve had before the fall, we need to say this. This really is true. This is really how they lived. But they fell. And God made the will mutably. Whoops. See if I can bring it back up. There we go. So that he might fall from it. And this is when we start to get in the real weeds of the will. After Adam falls, what happens? This is where disagreements start to happen. This is where conflict happens. This is where denominations start to form different uh, confessions. This is when we start to not just be evangelical, but denominational, right? So the, the first part of creation, we should all hold to that. That's a very broad evangelical. This is when things start to get specific, and the confession makes it very clear in what they hold. Man by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, that man is not able by his own strength, to convert himself or prepare himself thereunto, prepare himself for that salvation. So when we have the fall, the first thing we need to see is that when we fell, we really fell in a head, a true federal head. And his name was Adam. When God gave the covenant of life to Adam, there were true, tangible blessings and curses set before him. And our spiritual head, our head, Adam, fell. He disobeyed that covenant. And when he did, the curses are tangible, and they really go down to all of his descendants, all of his seed. And this curse in which he occurred is one of death 
and enmity. Both. That we really did experience death in him. And when we are dead in our sins, we're talking about an ability. John 6, no man can come to Christ unless he is drawn. We, we, we can't just say that our head Adam fell and the consequences are just kind of this esoteric out there consequences. No, they really apply. They, they really do come down to us. Romans 5, death has spread from man to man because we're in Adam. The consequences were real. So his children were brought forth by nature, dead in sin, and children and children and children, generation and generation. The natural man under his head, Adam, is bearing the weight of that curse. Obey me and live. Disobey me. Die. Death is really upon them. And that's because those in Adam, we're going to talk about them in just one second, are under condemnation. That is condemnation, doesn't really look like it. <laughs> they really are under it. All right, so John 3. You don't come to the light because you hate it. You hate the light unless your deeds be made known. You don't believe. You're condemned already. No one is born without a head. You are either born with your head who's under condemnation, Adam, or spiritually born, Christ and under grace, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. But you need to realize that you really are under that, and that includes the will. We shouldn't say, well, under condemnation, you just don't believe in Jesus. No, the whole man is under something. The will, the affections, the mind. You are a person who sits under condemnation if you're in Adam. It's a true, tangible condemnation that comes down and perverts and contorts and twists to where you're not just dead, where you have no ability, but you are actually an enemy of Christ. And this is talking about desire. And this is why they say, altogether averse from that good. So it's not that you are just dead in sin. You are antagonistic to Christ himself. Because your head disobeyed and you fell in him. And that is a very um, poignant point of Reformed theology. We don't say that we are just a neutral gathering of uh, sinners. The world is not just a collective people who happen to sin. 
and they just need forgiveness, right? That is a true statement, but that's not the soul, that's not the fullness of the weight. The people who are living in Adam are actually enemies to the cross. In Philippians 2, Christ tore down the wall of hostility. We were hostile in our head, Adam, and our will was active. You were actively willing hostility. So not only were you unable to come to Christ in your head, but you were actively desiring against him, right? Galatians 5, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. They're not just desires that are bad. No, they're against something. They're against someone. They're against the spirit. And so when we say, if we hear someone say, well, you Calvinists or Reformed people don't think we have a free will, we should say, what do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean by a free will? Because I'm saying people who are in Adam, they're not forced to sin by external consequences. They're not. That's an inward thing working. And they're also not determined by a mechanical thing going in them. They truly want to sin. And that's a tragic state. We shouldn't throw this doctrine around like a club. It should almost be held with a tear. It is tragic. Their will is active. And it freely does what it wants. Death and sinful desires. Because they have a covenant head and there's condemnation attached to that head. There really is true condemnation. And this is why they say this will, this, this will, an, uh, a condemned will, a perverted, a twisted will in Adam, by his own strength, he can't convert himself. A heart of stone can't just melt itself. And nor can it prepare himself. He, he, there's no amount of type of contrition they can make to all of a sudden change their desires. Right? No amount of sorrow over the consequences of sin alleviates the condemnation. That doesn't remove the hostility. That doesn't remove the penalty of that covenant. You, I know friends who are, don't profess Christ, and they really hate consequences of sin. Of course they do. But that hatred of the consequence of sin doesn't remove it. They need something else. They they need a redeemer. They need a mediator. They need a new and better covenant. They need someone to change them. And this is where we're going to next. So even though we're still in the time of the fall, give me some more room here. There is a better covenant a covenant of grace with a true head. And this is where we are now. When God 
converts a sinner, translate, uh, translates him into a state of grace. So under condemnation, you've been translated to, brought into, converted into a state of grace. It doesn't bear down. It, it transforms and brings you up. It doesn't weigh heavy. It, the burden's on him, and he brings you up in the state of grace. And in this state of grace, he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin, and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so as that, by reason of his remaining corruption, right? So in the state of grace, right? We've been engrafted into Christ. Corruption still remains, right? We're forensically justified. I still sin. (laughs) There's still this remaining corruption that is slowly being sanctified away. We don't perfectly, nor only will that which is good. We also will that which is evil. So, being in covenant, uh, having a covenant head of Adam, you, you truly do bear death, and that death truly does work in you enmity. I mean, it's tangible, but the good news of how the covenant tangibly works is it's true over here. In Christ, there is life. And there is adoption. Both ability and desire. When we talked about um, last, a couple weeks ago, chapter 7 and 8, Christ's active obedience, fulfilling the law for us, so he could grant us his righteousness and be our very righteousness, so he could unite himself to us, what is, what is he giving? What is, what is he redeeming? He's giving life. We've gone from someone under death to actually being united to the living hope himself and makes us alive with him. In our union with him, we go from death to life. We actually have the ability now in the Holy Spirit to obey, to follow, to understand. And not only that, but he gives us adoption. So what is Galatians 5? Let's go back to that. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are set against one another so that you may not do what you want to do. You may now finally be free from that thing. You may now finally walk in newness of life. Romans 6, you've been baptized into Christ, that you may walk in newness of life. What, what, what is this ability and will 
that we have as the people of God? Why, why do you actually obey and come here? Why, why do you pull your little children aside and discipline and spank? Why, why, why do you read the word? What is this new, what is this thing you're doing with your will? That you're actually following him. Well, you have a head who gave you his own life. And you have life in him. And his spirit is working and willing in you true and God-pleasing desires. And not only is he giving you good, pleasing desires, he's enabling you to walk according to those desires that you may actually commune with your Redeemer. And there's a a misnomer that our Arminian uh, brothers and sisters can say that God actively works disobedience in uh, those in Adam in the same way he actively works obedience in those in Christ. That's the same way of actively working. And it's not true. It's a, it's a, it's a wrong way of viewing it, right? So for those who are in Adam, their souls and their wills are like Plato. All right, so what do you, what do you have to do to harden Plato? Nothing. You, you, you remove it from its protective case, you put it there, and you leave it alone. And Plato hardens and hardens and hardens. Why is it that we have unbelieving friends and family members who seem to not be walking in so much sin as others? Because they, in his grace, he is still protecting that Play-Doh. He's not salvifically grabbing it and molding it into the image like he is us. He's not warming it, mushing it, conforming that will, conforming it into the image of Christ so I can say, no, I actually do want to follow. I, I really do desire him because he's taken his hands to my soul like Plato and mushed and morphed and made it warm and malleable. But to those who are outside of Christ, he just leaves it and it naturally hardens. When he hardened Pharaoh's heart, he didn't go into the heart of Pharaoh and Pharaoh say, well, I kind of want to let them go. No, I'm going to make you. No, he, he removed protective, unsalvific grace and the heart naturally in death runs to deathly desires. But that's not true for you. If you're in Christ, your will is being actively handled, actively worked upon. Is that not encouraging? That the very will that God does command that you will, right? It's not forced. It's not determined. You really do need to walk in the will. All the commandments of humbling yourself, yeah, you need to do. Obey me, yeah, we need to do that. All those we need to do. But you don't have a redeemer who just said, I'm going to make a way. Good luck finding it. He, he came and he's gently pulling out 
dirt from that Play-Doh, gently molding it into a beautiful image of his son so that you are enabled to actually will the pleasures of God. But there is still remaining corruption. There is still desires in you not yet fully sanctified. All right, if we go to Romans 7, Paul says this in such a visceral way, it's like we're standing next to him when he says it, when we read it. I do what I hate, and I hate what I do. All right, so he's not saying, man, I keep messing up, eh, whatever. I hate it, he says. There's a, a desire, a working in me. I have been adopted by the Most High King, and when I sin, it's no longer a, simply a delight. I hate it. I hate this sin, but I do it. And he goes, but I do what I hate. Oh, corrupt man that I am, who can save me? He doesn't ask, what can I do? Who? Who has the authority to come to me and to change me and to mold me? Who has the patience to walk with me? Who can bear these sins so he can give me his righteous obedience? Who can do this? Christ, our mediator, our head. And so when we walk in our life, there will be sin mingled with our obedience. And this is why we have the Holy Spirit as the down payment, the assurance of the final and full adoption that will come on the day of glory. Right? So our, our justification does happen in a minute. We, we don't, we're not progressively being it. We're not proving our justification. And our adoption, in one sense, does happen. Right? But in Romans 8, we're longing. Like even creation itself is longing forward, looking ahead to the final, full, consummated adoption where this residue of sin will be no more. And look how, look how we, um, Paul talks about this in a couple passages. And I want you to see that he, he, he talks about those in Adam and those in Christ comparatively. Like he's contrasting them. And when he does, he does mention desires and actions, that they're, they're, they're mingled together. That What we desire, we do. And what we do is because we desired it. All right, so in 1 Corinthians 2, we see, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? All right, he's, he had just talked about the thoughts of God, the, the high lofty ways of God. And so he's talking about the spirit of God himself knows God. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, 
we, the people of God, the church, those in Christ, but we, we have received the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in the words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, all right? So those not in Christ. The natural person does not, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly. He's under death. They're, they're, they're folly to him. In the previous chapter, he had just said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks. It's just, it's, it's folly. And he, this natural man, he's not able. There's an ability he doesn't have. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Right, so if I were to look at one of y'all and say, well, I know what's in your thoughts. I, I know better than you what's in your mind. No, 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 just, just trust me. You wouldn't want to stay in the same room as me. You'd probably get up and walk away. It's very frustrating. We kind of do the same thing with God. No, 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 no. I don't, I, don't, I don't need to hear the words in the revelation directly from the Spirit of God. No, no, no. I know. I, I, I know what's there. I can discern it on my own. I mean, we get offended when it's us. How offended should we be when we act the same way about God? Any, any discernibility that we've been granted because we have a gentle and humble spirit of God conveys it to you as a husband does a wife, as a father does a child, as a friend does to another friend. But those in the natural person, they don't accept it because they can't discern it. They haven't been enabled to discern it. They're still under that condemnation. And then Romans 8, 5 through 11 For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. It's death. It's not just a simple emphatic phrase. To set your mind on the flesh is death it's death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. When we look at our world, it's easy to think these poor souls have just been confused by all these wayward worldviews these, these wayward ways of thinking about life and people and God and sin and justice and mercy, they just came from somewhere and led them astray. No, they, all these views came from men and women who were angrily in enmity to God and wanted to 
dishonor his world, dishonor his justice, dishonor his mercy, dishonor his salvation. They, they bring forth theories, they bring forth ways of living from a heart that's hostile, from a mind that is hostile. And they're, they're, they're entrapped in this because condemnation's real and it's, and it's over them. And so their will, actively working, actively creating theories and ways of life, entertainment, um, dress, outfits, the way we live, everything, everything, with hostility, purposeful hostility. It's a sad, tragic world. But that's not the only thing we should say about our world. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Ability, desire and ability, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, you, however, I hear this, you, however, are not in the flesh. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, if he really does dwell in you, that's, that's the old man. Hear me, that's the old, that's, that's the old man. That is the old man. You, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but you do. You belong to him. You're his. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, even though you can think of a lot of sins you committed this week, some that are very personal and that may have been your struggle for a lifetime, some that really hurt you that you did it, and you can say with Paul, I hate that I did that. Even though that's you, right? You can say that. The Spirit is life in you because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also, He will, He will also give to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He will give you life. The tangible condemnation that leads to disobedience is true in its mirroring difference over here in the covenant of of grace. You truly will walk in newness of life if you're in Christ. It is a set thing because the Holy Spirit is powerfully accomplishing what Christ did on the cross. And that is how we should walk with both boldness and humility. You will. You are now in the Spirit. Walk. Keep in step. Go forth with. These are all the terms. Go with the Spirit. Walk in Him. And this is the final thing he says, the the divines say. The will of man is made perfect and immutably free to do good alone in the state of glory.
when Christ returns, there will be no more sin for you to commit. Calvin talks about one of the, the pillars of walking in this life as a Christian is setting the mind on the future of what will be in Christ and, and looking there and bringing it down now, like bringing it here and making it real as you live. And so we should daily, or as often as we can, ponder, yeah, I, I, I did sin this week. I will sin next week. My body is still under corruption. Oh, but I have a promise that is actively working now so my will can walk in newness of life. But on the day of his return, there will be no more sin. No more. You'll no longer struggle with gossip. You'll never struggle with exasperating your children. You won't struggle with lust. You won't struggle anymore with hating your brother. Gone. And hear me, not because that's forced in glory and not because it's mechanical in glory. It'll be you (laughs) standing righteous, perfect, made mature, brought forth in glory. And you, you really will walk that way for eternity. It's not some mechanical mystery. He's working and active, bringing his bride all the way to maturity. And that's how we need to walk here and now and set our mind on that beautiful thing that that really will happen. All right, we got about 10, 12 minutes. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to have any questions if we have any. Oh, Father, this is a, uh, it can be a heady topic. Um, there are many questions that do come up. How do we, how do we actually walk in this right now? Um, if, if God has, is sovereign over if everything, how does my will work? And those are, those are good questions. But, Father, may we just sit and rejoice. Uh, we're not. We're not in the flesh if we really are in you. We're not. We, we have life. We've been granted Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our understanding. He is our sanctification. What a glory. And Father, uh, this week, may we truly walk in that. May we see our will as a gift to honor him and to truly walk in the spirit, to truly obey in a humble adoration and thanksgiving that we can, even though we were sold unto death in Adam. You alone have brought us forth by grace to walk with you and to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.